Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. So glad to have all of you with us again for another edition of our show. This is the kind of day when people who love politics, who work in uh, either journalism covering politics, are professors of political science, uh, others who are just plain junkies, uh, wait for every chance. They, we love days like today because, of course, uh, Joe Biden has now named Kamala Harris to be his running mate. We're going to talk about that a little bit later in the show. And uh, we know that this afternoon, Biden and Kamala Harris will be together in some form uh, to uh, uh, final, formalize the uh, selection. And uh, we'll begin to hear the messages that they're going to be promoting throughout the campaign. So that's an exciting uh, day f- f- for all of us who love politics. And then... We've had this very, very peculiar election up in the 14th Congressional District in Georgia that uh, we're going to talk about at the beginning of the show today because it, we, the question is going to be whether the election of Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is now most likely to go ahead and fill that seat since it's such a red district, is she an outlier or is she in some way Uh, a part of a wave of Republicans who are going to try to continue reshaping the party in the years ahead. We're going to talk about all of that with the perfect panel uh, for today's show. They include Greg Bluestein, of course, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. They greeted you with such enthusiasm up at Marjorie (laughs) Taylor Greene's uh, victory party, I understand, last night, Greg. You were up there covering it, right? Yeah, such enthusiasm that moments after I tweeted what she said about Nancy Pelosi, I got uh, escorted, kicked out of the uh, out of the party. I was the only reporter in there at the time, and I got ousted. Congratulations. I consider it a badge of honor for a journalist to be kicked out of one political victory party or another, in this case, the Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, party. We'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Uh, but first, let me also introduce... Uh, Alan Abramowitz, professor of political science at Emory University. Um, Professor Abramowitz, when we introduce you, I think it's important that I start fleshing out your biography, especially in an election year. You really are considered one of the leading experts on forecasting models for elections. Um, Your forecasts have very correctly predicted popular vote winners in every election since 1988, you're the author of The Great Alignment, Race Party Transformation and the Rise of Donald Trump. And uh, I, I think it's important that our listeners who are used to hearing you on the show understand uh, that as we go forward in this election cycle, you're a really good person to have with us. By the way, Alan, I noticed this morning that Nate Silver at 538 has posted a new piece on the Trump-Biden uh, election. And yeah. uh, he says, well, the, the, what Trump's 29% chance of winning, but he points out very quickly that that doesn't mean Trump doesn't have a very good chance of winning re-election. It's an, it's an article worth reading. Hi, Alan. Hi, I'm glad to be with you. Thanks, thanks for all the nice uh, uh, comments there. I do think of myself as a legend in my own mind. 
<laughs> we are also joined uh, by uh, Dr. Marilyn Davis, who is a professor of political science at Spelman College. We're very glad to have you, uh, Dr. Davis. You have worked a lot in the area of exploring the role that African-American women play, especially in Georgia's congressional and state legislative uh, districts. And you've looked at um, concerns about how the mainstream uh, media uh, promotes images of American women, of African-American women in uh, politics. And I wanted, again, to flesh that out a little bit. How are you doing this morning, Dr. Davis? Fine. How are you? Thank you so much, Mr. Nygut, for having me again. I enjoyed our time together <laughs> in November. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I did, sorry. too. And and as you've been very nice. You know, we're very informal on this show, so we call each other by first name, so I'm glad you don't mind my calling you Marilyn as we Perfect. go forward. Thank you so um, Heath much. Heath Garrett is... Keith Garrett's also with us. He, of course, is a Republican uh, consultant, uh, most closely identified always with uh, Johnny Isaacson, uh, who he uh, worked with for um, many, many years. Um, Heath, uh, did you you didn't have any anybody in uh, races in runoffs here in Georgia last night, did you? I had a couple of uh, smaller races, Bill. It's interesting. Uh, in one race, we're down by 34 votes, and in one race, we're up by 83. So when people say what, that their vote doesn't count. What races are those? Uh, we've got a, we got a yeah. commission race out in DeKalb County and a state senate race up in northeast Georgia. So it's, uh, it, it, it's living proof that every vote can count in these uh, elections. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. But it's great to be with you all on such a distinguished panel this morning. Yeah. We're glad to have you. All right, Bluestein. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene wins the 14th district with about 57% of the vote over Joe John uh, Cohen Cowan with uh, 43% of the vote. We know about her affiliation with uh, QAnon, um, but as you said uh, a little a couple of minutes ago when I introduced you, uh, she made some fairly startling remarks uh, in her victory speech last night, including a comment she made about Nancy Pelosi, which I think it's okay for you to uh, uh, use on the show, mm-hmm. although you might want to just say B-word if that's more mm-hmm. to your liking. Go ahead, tell us, what, what did she, among other things, what did she say? Yeah, I mean, she started with the typical red meat, which, which you know, we've grown accustomed to hearing from Republicans, just like Democrats, throw out their own red meat, talking about how she's going to be the worst nightmare to the liberal left, and, news, and she said the news media was... Uh, hates her guts, and that her victory was a was a victory against the, the the establishment and the swamp in Washington. And then I'll use the B word instead of using the word. But then she turned her sights on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi, in a way that, that to me went beyond the usual rhetoric that you always hear. Um, this is what she said: She's a hypocrite. She's anti-American, and we're going to kick that B word out of Congress. Um, and this is a um, election victory speech, right? A victory lap. Mm-hmm. This is a this is a moment where you usually see politicians, um, you know, let bygones be bygones and talk about the future and and you know and and, and maybe congratulate their opponent for a well, race well run. Not necessarily. I'm not. I'll put it this way. I'm not. I've never heard anything like that before. And mm-hmm. I never have either gotten kicked out of a party right after I tweeted that. I was. I wasn't hiding or anything like that. I walked in, um, had my computer out, was 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 live tweeting what she was saying. Looked around the room, didn't see any other reporters in there. But you know, that's not necessarily um, out of the norm. Um, and then right after I tweeted that, her campaign manager walked over to me and said, um, "You're out of here." <laughs> so I I protested uh, and then was escorted out and just hung out in the lobby and 
several of her supporters came out and hung out with me and were kind of laughing about what happened. Uh, but it was definitely the, uh, the first time that's ever happened to me in my, I guess, two decades or so of covering this kind of thing. So we're going to dig down on what her election victory, and again, she very uh, little chance she won't take that seat in the 14th when Congress uh, convenes again for the new session in January. But Heath, in the interest of bipartisan fair play, when Greg says right. we haven't heard that sort of comment from a, a candidate in victory, I do think we have to point out that Rashida Tlaib, who, by the way, won her uh, primary uh, uh one of the squad up there, Rashida Tlaib, got herself into a little trouble when she, in fact, used an explicative in describing what her intention was to do to President Trump once she took her seat in Congress. So just to be Good fair, uh, yeah. we've seen that on the part of at least one Democrat, Heath. No, no, that's right. And, and look, I've, I've spent my life working for Johnny Isaacson, so we never engaged in rhetoric at that level. It reminds me of a couple of things with these political science professors. You know, it is the people's house in one respect, and the House of Representatives has always had its, uh, you know, I'll call them gadflies on the far left and on the far right throughout history. It ebbs and flows. That's no excuse for that kind of rhetoric at the end of the day uh, that, that I don't necessarily like or participate in. But I do think that she's part of a trend on both the left and the right that goes along with AOC and Congressman, Congresswoman Tlaib and others, uh, where on both ends of the spectrum in these extremely liberal districts and these extremely conservative districts uh, in small uh, runoffs, you're able to elect people that uh, are very emotional and uh, very out there on the ideological spectrum. And I think that's a, not just a trend here in Georgia. I think it's a national trend uh, that we're seeing. And Marjorie Green fits it right now. And she, she, I think her tone fits the kind of anger and frustration that every American's feeling on the left or the right in a primary that was geared towards the right. And uh, and I think I, I interviewed a lot of people up in that way, didn't have a, a dog in that fight. But uh, what I heard all the time about her was she's saying what I feel right now. And I think that was just a tonal, emotional reaction by the voter. Okay. Uh, I want to get first Alan and then you, Marilyn, in on this conversation, because if we're going to go forward and talk about what her election means in terms of where Republicans, at least one branch of the party, may be headed, I think we have to be careful. Uh, she's not just angry. She has promoted, Alan, conspiracy theories. Uh, she has condemned uh, Muslims over and over again. She believes in much of what she, at least she We've seen videos in which it appears she certainly supports QAnon conspiracy theories. At one point, she suggested that the Las Vegas uh, shooting massacre may have been staged intentionally as a political uh, ploy. Uh, she accused George Soros of being complicit in, as she put it, in the most horrifying imagery, burning Jewish bodies during the Holocaust. George Soros was a teenager in the Holocaust. So it's one thing to say she is angry and is on the right of her party. It's another to understand some of her uh, horrific rhetoric, Alan. Exactly. Um, so I think this is uh, more than the angry comments last night. I think this is probably what is of greatest concern to some of the mainstream Republican uh, leaders right now. But uh, because you know she's gonna be in the House of Representatives and if she's gonna be saying things like this and push, pushing these conspiracy theories uh, as a member of Congress, I think that's going to be uh, 
a source of some concern and embarrassment to the to the leadership. And frankly, she doesn't strike me as someone who's going to keep quiet when she gets up there. Uh, the other thing I would say about this, though, and one difference between the two parties, and and certainly Keith is right that you know we've seen some kind of uh, a parallel rhetoric on the far left, uh, but I would say there is a difference in that um, some of these very extreme views uh, and this anger and, and hostility and, frankly, racism and Islamophobia are also being promoted by the president of the United States. Um, president Trump has you know, engaged in uh, pushing some of these theories in retweeting uh, QAnon conspiracy theories. Um, so that that's that's really remarkable. That that's something we have not seen before. Um, and you know, so I think I think that is that is important to keep that in mind. Uh, um, but it'll it'll be very interesting to see uh, what happens to her once once she gets to Congress uh, and uh, how she's treated by the by the Republican leadership. Marilyn Davis. Yes, uh, I agree with Alan, and I want to go back to the 1840s. As you mentioned, trending, uh, there is a historical trending as well. So in the 1840s, uh, it is reported that there was violent behavior in co- in Congress, and uh, even where people were actually attacking each other physically. So that, uh, I agree, is outlier behavior, that violent behavior. And um, both parties may engage in that kind of activity. But I think we have to get back to the basic uh, core that pluralism is what should govern Congress and what should govern America as well. The Constitution is not written in a sense of uh, extremism, yes, certain uh, storied or financial rights and benefits are protected. But on the other hand, there is an opportunity for compromise. And uh, I'm very, very concerned as we teach students politics and uh, encourage them to be politicians, uh, policymakers, there cannot be that kind of non-compromising behavior. Uh, When it does happen, we should look at leadership, yes, leadership in terms of encouraging it, but at the same time to say if you are a leader, there has to be a certain style and a certain method of um, working with other people in order to get the nation's interest uh, protected. So we will have... Um, Thank uh, you for that. Yes. Go ahead, finish that. Well, we will have outliers on the uh, Democratic and the Republican side, but at the same time, and as I I have students study them on both sides, we must come together also or we will be in a situation, and of course, as you see this violent behavior in Congress, it is just before the outbreak of the Civil War. And by just before, I mean, yes, there are some 20 years, but that's a short span of time. Yeah. Yeah. Greg Bluestein, one of the things that's interesting about this is, um, although we know that most of the Georgia congressional Republicans in the Georgia congressional delegation, when uh, uh, Green's uh, videos came to light, Politico was the first to uh, uh, publish them, uh, they condemned her. They backed away from her. 
But mm-hmm. as you point out in your article, and others have pointed out as well, it appears that Mark Meadows, now President Trump's chief of staff, uh, helped mm-hmm. organize uh, fundraising on her behalf. Jim Jordan uh, raised some money for her. And people like Governor Kemp, David Ralston, other Republican leaders never weighed in one way or the other on uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. What is that about? And what what do we say about um, how Republicans now are going to respond to her, both here in Georgia uh, and, of course, in Washington? Yeah, and, and by the way, President Trump has also now endorsed her um, after after yes, the runoff. Right. Said that she's going to be a, a future Republican star. Um, and let's be clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was she was no underdog in this race. She was expected to win, but it wasn't like she was some juggernaut when she got into this contest that was undefeatable, right? I mean, she was not. Uh, she was she moved she moved into the 14th district from the 6th district where she was challenging Karen Handel. She was kind of seen as a, a fringe candidate against Karen Handel. And the House Freedom Caucus that you mentioned, she went on the record with me in December, told me they recruited her to run. Um, and at that point, even as even as more of these uh, of these of these hateful comments came to light, um, you had some Republicans condemn them and distance themselves from her, but others um, stayed silent, including many of Georgia's Republican elite. And so. Um, Dr. Cowan over in the, her opponent can only be left to wonder. Um, he always had a he was always the underdog in this race, but he can only be left to wonder what could have happened had Governor Kemp, had Senator Purdue, had the Repu- the full weight of the Republican establishment in Georgia um, come down on Marjorie Taylor Greene um, in, in a certain sense, like what happened in the, in the neighboring district where you had a lot of Republican establishment leaders backing Andrew Clyde against Matt Gertler and Andrew Clyde ended up winning. Not the same dynamics at all. But still, um, clearly uh, a chance to uh, – a lot of Republicans are having buyer's remorse this morning, realizing that for the next months, years, Democrats are just going to pin her on them. She is going to – they're going to do their best to make her the face of the Republican Party in Georgia. Heath, uh, weigh in on this because um, your party is going to have to find a way to either work around her uh, – mm-hmm completely ignore her, uh, work with her. How, how do you see this unfolding? Well, look, you know, all Republicans agree that she creates a huge conundrum. I, I do want to reiterate, right, that she fits a narrative where there are four or five members of the Democratic caucus on the far left who may have made and stood by very anti-Semitic quotes recently, and the party has not condemned them or kicked them out of the Democratic caucus uh, it, and or, uh, you know, made outlandish statements of similar nature, right? And so, again, I'm not saying that two wrongs make a right here. We as Republicans, most of us did condemn and continue to condemn any comments that Marjorie Taylor Greene makes that, that go into the conspiracy theories mm-hmm. that, that do have either tinges or real racism in them. Uh, uh, unfortunately, that's where we are in the info wars uh, that we're dealing with. And I think the majority of Republicans in Georgia will continue to condemn her if she makes uh, continue to make these outlandish uh, comments and those kind of things. I think it'd be interesting to see where she is. This is an interesting congressional district. There's probably only two of us who remember Larry McDonald, right, who <laughs> held this congressional seat <laughs> in the 1960s yeah. and 70s, right, a, 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 a co-founder of the, you know, John Birch Society, and he had a bunker because he was convinced that, you know, the, the federal government was coming to get him, and he was a Democrat from this district, 
All right. All right. Y'all can tell more of the history of it. But this 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 congressional district has a little bit of history of gadflyism. Bob Barr represented it when he was uh, extremely active and viewed as pretty far on the right. So uh, it's going to be really interesting to see. But yes, I think we as Republicans have a duty uh, to uh, make sure that when when candidates or nominees or congressmen or women say these things, I think you'll see the vast majority of Republicans uh, condemning uh, any kind of racist or uh, crazy uh, statements that she makes. I wish the president would condemn them. Uh, more forcefully than he has. I mean, that that, that bothers me uh, a great deal. I, I think, you know, the idea that if uh, only the Republican establishment had weighed in on this race more forcefully and in a more united way, that that might have stopped Marjorie Taylor Greene is somewhat questionable. Uh, I'm, I'm not at all sure that that, that would have uh, changed the outcome. Uh, it's pretty clear, I think, that she had a very strong base of support in that district. And that uh, probably a lot of her supporters uh, resented the uh, attempts by some Republican establishment politicians to uh, to, to come into that race and and uh, and oppose her. Uh, and uh, you know that that could have that could very well have backfired. Uh, so I mean she she ends up winning very very easily. Um, I think it would have uh, something would have had to happen much much earlier uh, on to really. Uh, uh, keep her from entering the race in the first place, or uh, find a stronger opponent uh, to run against her in the in that primary. No, and I, I want to agree with the Professor, uh, who just said that the establishment coming in, if anything, would have helped her in a low turnout primary environment like this. Uh, when you're a candidate running against the establishment, uh, and that's again part of you know there are times where silence is more harmful to a candidate than jumping in right. It's the old adage, I'll endorse you if that'll if that'll help you, but I'm afraid it'll hurt you right, or vice versa. In some of those calculations, uh, yes. But at the end of the day, she was a she was a strong candidate. She was a self funder. Let's not forget she had a million dollars of her own money mm-hmm. that she spent. That's mm-hmm. a rarity. That's an outlier, not only in Georgia, mm-hmm. but around the nation yeah. uh, for this. It gave her a huge competitive advantage in a multi-candidate first runoff uh, with those kind of things. And uh, she took advantage of social media. The other thing I'm concerned about, I know this panel would be too, is that both bases of both parties seem to not trust the normal uh, streams of journalism anymore, right? So it's almost like no matter what facts Greg might put out there, right, there's a certain constituency on the left and the right mm-hmm. that are just going to presume that whatever the news source is is either biased. Uh, and so when there are real facts, uh, that the average voters tuning that out now, particularly in these primaries and these runoffs, and I think that's part of what played out uh, in the 14th. All right, Greg, let me let's uh, move beyond uh, her and what her impact might be on the on the U.S. House and talk about her in relation to other elections coming up. I mean, um, obviously, the Georgia, the state house is in play. Many many Democrats believe they have the opportunity to flip it and make it a majority Democratic house. I'm wondering what you think, how Democrats in those races might want to make make use of Marjorie Taylor Greene and her extremist views to try to paint a picture of Republicans as being, uh, 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 in, in a similar kind of uh, fashion, extremists. And, and peop- are they going to try to hang yeah. her on legislative candidates? Exactly that right. I mean, they already are. 
um, uh, within minutes of, of Green's victory, um, you heard uh, Representative Sherry Bustos, who's the chair of the DCC, call her a next generation Steve King uh, and try to pin her on Rich McCormick and Karen Handel, who both have disavowed her comments, by the way. And, and Karen Handel has, has forcefully uh, opposed her in every single way, including endorsing John Cowan. Um, Scott Hogan, the executive director of the Georgia uh, Democrats, said that Republican extremism won and that Georgia Republicans own this crisis and their mealy mouth statements can't hide the fact that her nomination is a stain on their party. So they're trying to broaden the impact out. And um, you, I've already heard from some analysts who say that this could be an anchor uh, on Democrats, uh, sorry, on Republicans in November um, because she's going to now be on TV ads and, and every single, every single uh, mailer is going to try or try to connect her with other Republicans who might be running in more moderate districts. So, Marilyn Davis, let me ask you the same question yeah. because you have a particular interest in African American women in in uh, in Georgia, uh, uh, the Georgia legislature. Um, she has made comments which many people characterize as racist. Um, yes. How is that? going to impact on uh, on the election coming up in November here in Georgia? Well, I think it would depend on the approach that voters take, that uh, politicians take as well. I think that issues should come first. So constituents, whether they are African-American women, whether they are the entire constituency of the state of Georgia, what are the issues that are facing people? Fundamentally, legislatures, state, as well as federal and local government also, they are to represent the people. So the issues have to come first. And there is a lot of cloudiness when we have the animosity that has emerged. Uh, I agree with Heath. I think that the animosity has come out of the, the social media age, but that is with us. There's so many benefits of social media. At the same time, there is that combination of social media and dark money that uh, was warned about back in uh, in the 1980s, the mid-1980s. So now with that dark money, there is so much of it, you don't know where it comes from, but at the same time, you are afraid. If I say the wrong thing, then maybe uh, some other caucuses will come after me with that. I think the establishment goes into this to make not only a combo, but also a kind of triple edge. Any establishment force, in any institution, any organization, when the establishment does not respond to the people's needs, they become alienated, or as you said, they become angry. And uh, that anger becomes a very uh, steep and very deep emotionalism. So I think we're looking at uh, a combination, and there has to be a change uh, in that. There have to be events changing. We know historically that the Democratic Party was not always the darling of um, rights protection. In fact, the Republicans were. So we go through those periods, but at the same time, we have to keep in mind what are the, uh, the analytical factors, the intervening factors, and at the same time, how are we going to promote compromise? Okay. Uh, by the way, uh, issues over uh, 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 sort of uh, 
the kind of politics that Marjorie Taylor Greene seems to have played of uh, 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 making people, uh, attacking people in the most basic terms, whatever. From your lips to God's ears is all I can say about that, Merrill Davis. we got to get a break out of the way, and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Welcome back to uh, Political Rewind. Um, Alan Abramowitz, um, when you do your modeling of a presidential election, how important is the selection of the vice presidential candidate in those models? Is it significant or does it tend to play a very secondary role? It tends to play no role whatsoever in uh, ah. anyone's for in, in, in anyone's forecasting model that I, not only my forecasting model but in anyone's forecasting model um, so uh, you know I, I think we've heard a lot of commentary to the effect that uh, Joe Biden's selection of a running mate would be more important than uh, it, than it usually is because of his age uh, and and so of course there is always a concern that this person might have to step into the job uh, or, or that uh, after four years, he might, if he is elected, he might not want to run for a second term. And it, the vice president would be in uh, an advantageous position to run for the office. And that's all true. And I, I think it matters a great deal in terms of uh, governance. Um, vice presidents can play an important role in assisting the president in outreach to constituencies that the president is not that well connected to, in this case, minor, the minority community, uh, for example. Um, I think they're hoping that uh, that her selection uh, will help to energize uh, minority voters uh, and, and, you know, increase turnout. That was one, one of the biggest problems the Democrats had in 2016 and what made it possible for Donald Trump to win uh, the presidency, the way he did, uh, was a decline in African-American turnout, particularly uh, in <clears> states <throat> like Mich- Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, uh, where Trump won by very narrow margins. And I think um, you know, the Biden campaign is probably hoping that Kamala Harris will help to increase African-American turnout. But as far as the overall impact of the vice presidential selection, no, it's, it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it's not seen as much of a factor. So, Greg Bluestein, we uh, he, I, I was interested in what uh, 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 Professor Abramowitz would say about that, uh, because obviously the attention of the country uh, is focused on Kamala Harris today. Uh, she is, Greg, a historic choice. Uh, the first African-American woman of in- Indian ancestry uh, to be named to as a uh, running mate on a major party ticket. Uh, so it is a historic moment, Greg. It is first woman of color on a major party ticket, um, and, and and also you know given there, there was so much more scrutiny on this just given uh, Vice President Biden's age right he's seventy seven he'll be seventy eight if he wins when he's sworn in um, there's there's no guarantee he's even run for a second term he hasn't he hasn't said anything anything of that sort yet so she's looked at not just as a as a as a running mate but also a potential political understudy who could be the leader of the party. In, in a matter of years, um, and also someone, as, as Professor Obama has mentioned, who might, might, is not beloved on the party's far left, um, but at the same time 
can certainly energize the most important constituency for Democrats, which is the black community, the black voters. Um, they, they, you know, in, in states like Georgia, they, they, they are the backbone of the Democratic Party, but also in states like Wisconsin and Michigan, where Hillary Clinton struggled, it was, um, it was, it was largely due to a lack of enthusiasm among black voters. Yeah, uh, Bill, you know, I had a, this is, I had a chance to work with uh, Kamala Harris, Senator Harris now, uh, when she was Attorney General of California, and I was working with Sam Owens, our Attorney General, and they worked together, the national AGs. And I remember the first time I walked in a room with her, and somebody whispered and said, uh, you know, Kamala Harris is the female Barack Obama. And uh, mm-hmm. this was uh, well before her rise to the to the U.S. Senate. It, it didn't turn out to be that she had that extra it factor in this primary, but uh, there's no question that we have a lot of lessons we can learn from Stacey Abrams' race in 2018 and how I think that what that she did in Georgia factored into uh, President, uh, uh, you know, nominee Biden's uh pick of Kamala Harris, right? Stacey Abrams did something in Georgia that nobody had done since Barack Obama had done in 2012, and she was able to energize uh, African-American voters uh, in a way that we had not seen since Obama in 2012. And I think that what uh, Biden is trying to do here is is mimic that. It's going to be fascinating for us. We can talk about Stacey later, but, uh, you know, Kamala Harris, as both an attorney general and as a senator, has a record that's different from Biden's. It's going to be a little bit different, but uh, I do think she could, going with the professor's comments, have a little more impact than we've seen historically, uh, simply because the age of both of these presidential nominees, or the president and then Joe Biden, and uh, I think she's got the ability if Republicans aren't paying attention to uh, uh, really motivate voters, particularly in swing states. So while you've got the ball, Heath, um, let's bring it down to Georgia. What uh, if, in fact, the polling across most polls is correct, that Georgia right now appears to be a toss up state and the Trump campaign seems to think it is since they're pouring money into ads here. What impact might Kamala Harris have on the outcome of the race in Georgia? Well, I've, I've always felt that uh, second only to Stacey Abrams, uh, for, when it was talking about impact in the state of Georgia, Kamala Harris was the more logical choice for Biden uh, to, to help. You know, Georgia's trending towards being in play. Uh, I, yeah, I've, we've seen this over the last three cycles. Uh, it would not surprise me if President Trump gets 48, 49 percent of the vote and Biden gets 46, 47, 48 percent of the vote. And President Trump only wins Georgia by a point or two this year. And I think Kamala Harris uh, does help motivate uh, voters for Biden in the state of Georgia and in other states where they have a higher uh, African-American population. And, it, of course, Kamala Harris is interesting because she's also uh, of Indian descent uh, and also can be a, a a motivator for other people of color, not just African-Americans and and those of Indian descent. So I think she's going to have an impact in Georgia, which is why President Trump's spending money. Marilyn Davis, I would like to personalize this with you, if I may, for a moment. You, I think, have been teaching political science for some three decades or more. You have been following and watching politics for a very long time. And so I I would like to, as I said, make it personal for a minute. As an African-American woman, when you heard about Kamala Harris's uh, selection, how how, how did you receive that? 
as a person? I received it as a person in looking first at the the old balance theory of the, the JFK selection of Lyndon Johnson. And I thought about it. Well, there there's so many electoral votes in the state of California. The Democrats won California 2016. So this might also be uh, a good edge. Uh, Senator Harris represents California. So this might be an opportunity to uh, speak to what I would call the urgency for voters who are looking at uh, Democratic candidates. I think there also is an urgency for black voter support uh, across the board. Black women vote at higher rates than black men. Also, I want to mention the youth vote. So uh, in 20, I'm sorry, in 2008, and again in 2018, the youth vote was very energized in Georgia. Uh, on Spelman's campus in 2008, we had weekly, it seems like tri-weekly uh, panels on that election. So in 2018, with the gubernatorial race, having Stacey Abrams uh, as a Spelman alumna also helped to energize that campus. But I think it was more than just the campus, it was the state, uh, and in 2008, it was the nation. I mentioned the importance of issues, which I think should be number one in elections. But again, it is the likability, the perception of a candidate as well. So I think that is what uh, energized in 2008, especially, but those issues have to take front stage also. Um, was there any emotional reaction on your part that for the first time, a woman who looks like you do is the vice presidential candidate on the Democratic ticket? Uh, yes, but then I also recall and um, going back in history so there have been black women running for president and vice president of the united states since 19 since the 1940s so my having known that i'm not as much uh just excited excited because i know that we have had that trend but yes this is a new period that we're looking at uh, in the age of social media, the age of uh, so much money being in campaigns. So it is a good feeling. Uh, I would like to also have seen someone who has a strong uh, foreign policy uh, background uh, looking at the vice presidential race as well, or the vice presidential selection. I have a concern so, uh, about uh, Eleanor, the, the number. Yes, go ahead. Go, no, go ahead. Finish your statement. I have a concern about the percentage of black votes that Donald Trump got in 2016. And uh, I'm wondering if that number will be higher in 2020. So we have uh, a kind of double-edged sword here. So we have a VP black woman um, running mate on the Democratic side. So perhaps this will address that urgency for black vote support. But on the other hand, are there more voters who are going to say, we're going to vote for Donald Trump, more black voters saying that. So in, uh, in 2016, the percentage was 7%. Could it be 14% in 2020? 
All right. Well, uh, Alan, let me let me get you back in here, and then Greg, I want to w- get you to weigh in on this as well. Um, it didn't take long, Alan, for the Trump campaign and for President Trump himself to uh, uh, weigh in on Kamala Harris. Uh, President Trump called her nasty. Uh, he said she's the meanest and most horrible uh, person. Uh, she is disrespectful in the way she attacked Joe Biden during uh, the debate. She certainly did uh, uh, go after Biden in, in that one debate. And it, it is kind of remarkable that Biden is the kind of guy who is, says, look, I can handle that and went ahead and picked her anyway. But it seems to me, Alan, that Republicans are going to have a little bit of a quandary and how they're going to go after her. Because on one hand, they are going to accuse her of being part of this radical left conspiracy to undo law enforcement, to, you know, to uh, uh, defund the police. And on the other hand, they're also uh, talking about the fact they're going to, some Republicans are going to go after her, trying to point out to African-Americans that this was a woman who prosecuted African-Americans left and mm-hmm. right as a district yeah. attorney and as attorney general. As, right. Alan, it's going to be an interesting problem for them, it seems to me. Well, we're already seeing that. Even before Joe Biden picked Kamala Harris as his running mate, they were also making both of those arguments against Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were shocked. On the one hand, he was a tool of the radical left who wanted to defund the police. Uh, and on the other hand, that he was overly harsh. Uh, his, his, his past positions uh, and legislation that he had sponsored, you know, were did damage to uh, the African-American uh, community. So uh, they were trying to do it both ways. I will say this. Uh, I, think, <clears throat> I think Kamala Harris is, uh, Democrats are hoping at least, that she'll accomplish two goals. One is to uh, increase turnout among African-Americans. I think that's what it's all about in the African-American community. It's about turnout. Donald Trump is not going to get 14 percent of the African-American vote. He's not going to get 10 percent of the African-American vote. Um, he's going to get five, six, seven percent at most of the African-American vote in, in 2020. Uh, but the question is going to be turnout, and Kamala Harris can potentially help, help, uh, help with that. I think also Democrats are hoping that she will reinforce the party's growing appeal to college-educated white women uh, in, the, in, sub, in the suburbs. And this, this is something that we've seen uh, in Georgia and we've seen around the country, that college-educated voters in general, but especially college-educated women, have been trending Democratic uh, and are turned off by Donald Trump. Uh, and a candidate, frankly, candidates like Marjorie Taylor Hall uh, are going to make the task of winning back these college-educated white suburban women even more difficult for Republicans. Uh, they're they're going to hang her around their their necks as, as as much as they can. So, um, I got I, 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 th- I think I that's got, what they're hoping for. I got to get to a break, but Greg, a final word on that before we take our break and move on to another couple of topics. Yeah, and President Trump knows that because he's been tweeting a lot about, in his words, quote, suburban housewives. And, and, and trying to appeal to safety and public public safety concerns and, and in some sense, uh, racial grievance politics in order to try to, to win them back or, 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 or gain or consolidate, uh, you know, the support he already has. Um, but, you know, this is a calculated decision by Biden's campaign that that they might lose some some young, youthful supporters who like Bernie Sanders and who, who want a more progressive candidate mm-hmm. as his running mate, but they're going to energize 
um, you know, the, the African-American base in a way that, that, you know, someone else wouldn't have. All right, let's get a final break of the show out of the way when we come back. By the way, we're going to devote, we're going to do a much deeper dive into Kamala Harris on tomorrow's show uh, after uh, she and uh, and Joe Biden have had their big event this afternoon. We'll have a much better sense of how they're going to position themselves. It'll be interesting to watch whatever chemistry you can establish when you're sheltering, uh, sort of when you're keeping social distance. But So we'll have uh, Andre Gillespie will be with us tomorrow to talk about it. Patricia Murphy's going to be here. Uh, Kevin Riley will be here and more. So we'll be looking much more intensely at that race uh, tomorrow. But I really appreciate the panel starting us off on this uh, today. All right, let's get our break out of the way and come back with a little more on Political Rewind. We've only got a little bit of time left on the show today, but I want to take up a couple of issues fairly quickly. Heath Garrett, the Ossoff campaign, announced uh, yesterday that they've raised $3 million just in the month of July. He nevertheless remains far behind uh, his opponent, David Perdue, the incumbent in total amount of money available. But Ossoff's all over TV right now, Heath. And not only is Ossoff on the air with his own spots, but we've got PAC money uh, running some pretty, pretty uh, uh, serious attack ads on David Perdue. Uh, What do you think about the way that race is shaping up right now? Well, no, I mean, it goes to what we've talked about for probably a year, Bill, on the show, is that outside money is coming to Georgia in 2020, and we're going to have a decade of competitive races statewide in this state. We're going to look a lot more like Florida uh, than we than we have been a super red state. I still think we trend a little bit more uh, red uh, than people uh, tend to think we are. Uh, David Perdue, because of the presidential cycle and because of the other open seat, the Isaacson seat that I was involved with, uh, with Senator Isaacson, um, you know, has a target on his back. He's done a great job of what we call bobbing and weaving through and raising money and playing his game. But uh, Ossoff has a national fundraising base that other uh, nominees in Georgia have not had in the past. He has some name recognition, and he's using that to his advantage. He's tr- what he's trying to do is hold David Perdue down so that he doesn't get the natural Republican bump that you get in September and October in Georgia that puts you back up over 50. That's what they're up to right this second, uh, see if they can do it. But David has actually come up with a big flight of television in the last couple of weeks as well, and I think it's going to be a competitive race but odds are still in David's favor. Okay, uh, it's going to be it. We will f- be following that race. Because we're short on time, I'm going to take up another very quick issue. Greg Bluestein, all of a sudden there's this kind of strange controversy over a book that Matt Lieberman, running in Senate race number two as a Democrat, uh, wrote a few years ago called Lucius. It's a book, it's a novel, but it imagine it's got an, an older white man in it who has an imaginary slave. It uses the N-word throughout the book. It, it appears that there's some intention behind it to do something metaphorical that's okay, but this is not the sort of thing there's no room for subtlety in a race like this. Yeah, I mean, he wrote it as an anti-racist book to to, to try to, in his words, try to explain how um, how 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 white supremacists, how how hateful people um, can get, get about their opinions and how we can overcome them. But it was a bizarre, uh, self-published, 300 or so page um, page book, and um, as as its concerns were revealed about it, had the head of the Georgia Double. 
NAACP call for him to withdraw from the race. And Nakima Williams, the, yeah. the chairwoman of the state Democratic Party, um, say there's no room for any sort of discrimination or discriminatory words in this contest. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it doesn't help him. We do have to say that both of the people you mentioned are definitely a Raphael Warnock uh, supporter, so there is that. What, okay, another quick thing, Alan Abramowitz in our lightning round. It now appears this the, the White House is now saying, oh, President Trump said you were going to get 400 bucks uh, in additional unemployment benefits. Well, it's really more like $300. States no longer have to kick in. This appears to be... Uh, just another misfire and another example of tri- over-promising and not even under-delivering because we don't know there's going to be any delivery on this, Alan. Right. No, that's right. I, I think they've mishandled this issue. Um, I think Nancy Pelosi concluded that uh, that she and the Democrats had the upper hand in these negotiations and they're gonna, they were going to hold out uh, for a better deal. Uh, and, and I think there will be uh, some my hunch is that there will become some kind of a deal. Everyone recognizes that it's urgent to get money into the into the pockets of workers to, to provide the additional unemployment benefits. Uh, and it, it wouldn't be that hard to imagine some sort of compromise uh, coming out of this. Uh, but again, it was a botched negotiation from from the standpoint of, uh, of the Trump administration. Okay, uh, finally, as we almost completely run out of time, Marilyn Davis, one of the best news uh, stories that came out of yesterday was that although it was a very low turnout election, there were very few problems apparently at polling places uh, with the machinery, the new computers that have been put in place. We have no idea whether bigger turnout in November will make a difference, but at least it appears that counties and the Secretary of State are working a little more closely together, Marilyn, to finally smooth out the election, don't you think? Yes, I have. Um, I'm optimistic about that. Uh, and I read that uh, 70% of the ballots will probably be uh, mail-ins, so that might help what will happen at the polling places. It will Let's be hope so. I'm sorry. Way. I'm going to... It should be exciting. I apologize for having to cut you off, but Sam Burmistoss is telling me we are completely out of time. Marilyn Davis, Ellen Abramowitz, Greg Bluestein, Heath Garrett, thank you all so much for being here for Political Rewind today. Uh, this afternoon, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will carry it when it happens. See you tomorrow. In the meantime, take care and please stay healthy. Bye, everybody.